Hello, everyone. My name is Duncan Artis, the Chief Investment Officer at Alan Gray. Welcome to another episode of the Alan Gray Podcast. Something we're putting quite a bit of effort behind because we think it's a really scalable and useful way to, to meet many clients. Today's actually uh, quite a special day. And why is it a special day? We're having our first external guest. In other words, someone who's not from Alan Gray and Orbis on the podcast. We're very happy to have my friend James Aiken from Aiken Advisors joining us today. I first met James around 11 or 12 years ago. I heard him giving a, a presentation in New York and I said, well, that guy sounds reasonably clever. And perhaps, you know, we sent about trying to find out his details. Um, and we've been happy clients for, for the last 11 years. And, and James has added a lot of value to our process. Maybe, James, if we could just start with a little bit of your, your background. You're Australian. We'll forgive you for that. But um, if you can just go sort of where did you start sort of briefly? How did you get to where you are? And how did Aitken Advisors actually start? It's good to be here with you, my friend. And it's wonderful to be here in Cape Town for your 50th anniversary, which is immensely special occasion for you all. So thank you for having me. And thank you for this opportunity to have a conversation with you and, and with your clients and listeners. Look, yes, I, I'm Australian, as I'm sure people can detect. I'm not from these parts. But uh, I never imagined a career in finance, but my father was a very good fund manager in Sydney. He was a stock picker. He was a value investor. Ironic, here we are. And he would come home to his three sons and talk from time to time about his work. And he never pushed us into finance, but the three of us all ended up in finance in various jobs me working in investment banking, my two brothers are stockbrokers and corporate advisors. And cutting a long story short, I realized early in my career in finance that I didn't have the bandwidth and the skill sets to be a trader. There's a temptation when you're a young man coming into finance, you want to be out there gung-ho trading, making all this money and stuff. But I realized that the skill sets to do that well were not my skill sets. But I also discovered very early in my career that I seemed to have this ability to explain things to people often complicated things in a way they can understand. And I started writing summaries of what I saw when I was working through the night at Macquarie Bank in Sydney on the FX desk. I would write a summary for my colleagues for what I saw during the night and what I thought it meant and how it might be useful to them. And that's how it all started. And then it just snowballed and I went to various jobs in Sydney and then ended up in London in May 1999 and again, in an advisory role. And look, fast forwarding, I picked up various skills along the way that turned out to be very useful. And Aitken Advisors is almost an accident of history. I helped a lot of people understand what was happening in 2007 and 2008. And on the back of that, people said, why don't you set up your own business? And here we are. Was that sort of a formative moment? If you look back, being at AIG, being Mm. One of the few people, because everyone looks in hindsight and say, oh, the GFC was so obvious. You know, I've watched the big short. Yeah. What were these people doing? But you were actually one of the few people who either helped people make money or saved a lot of money for your clients. So if you just go back then, maybe just talk about it a little bit. Yeah. I think people would find that quite interesting. Someone who was at the coalface during the biggest sort of financial collapse of the last sort of, I get 50 years, you could probably say. Well, to bring in some family history, I was the kid out of my three brothers who would always try to take the train set apart to figure out how it worked. So we had toy trains growing up in Sydney and I was like curious how it all worked. I'd do this, do that. And that sort of skill was quite useful in finance as well. And, you know, with the full benefit of hindsight, I started work 
at a very simple part of AIG at the time, which was AIG Trading in March 02. And that was very simple foreign exchange and commodities business. And then in 2003, that business was taken over by Joe Cassano AIG Financial Products. And the thing was, Duncan, as you do when you're 31, you think you know all about the world. And then suddenly you're in this new business in Curzon Street in Mayfair. And you realize there's this whole financial universe out there that nobody knows anything about. So it was completely transparent internally at AIG Financial Products. I could walk 10 feet and ask the chaps who were selling all the structured credit protection or doing all this stuff in CDOs or taking all the subprime exposure. I could walk and say, hey, look, sorry to interrupt. Could you explain to me what you're doing? Because I don't understand it. And they would tell you. And I would build this knowledge thinking, gee whiz, there's a whole lot of pretty ambitious stuff going on here. And by the time, I mean, hindsight again, Joe Cassano made me redundant in June 2006 because I had no interest in doing structured products. But I was very interested in how things work and how the world works. So he made me redundant. I had all this knowledge. I go to UBS incredibly in August 2006. They put me on a foreign exchange sales desk and I say, look, I'm very happy to do that job and speak to sovereign wealth funds, CEOs and others like that and help them understand this world. But I also have this knowledge about how the system works. And I think we've got a real problem because nobody knows what's underneath the financial system. And I think I should tell people. And to UBS's credit, they let me loose. It's very difficult to tell a man something when his salary depends upon him not understanding it. You know that famous Upton Sinclair quote? And if you've got a bunch of people, thousands of people working in financial markets who have made huge amounts of money out of the structured credit boom that was based upon subprime and, and US housing in general, it's very hard to say, look, are you sure about this? Because they might get quite put out by that. But there are a whole other class of investors who were suspicious that if US house prices went down, bad things could happen. So there was a stubborn audience, not least many of my colleagues at UBS, because they had a huge structured credit business, which caused a lot of problems for UBS. But there was a ready audience of skeptics out there waiting to be educated about what was actually happening and what could go wrong. And you mentioned the big short earlier, and all the characters in that book are very dear friends of mine uh, to this day. And we did a lot of work together. We had a lot of interesting conversations in 07 and 08. But my challenge was to say to people, here's how the financial system works, or better, here's how I have observed the financial system. Here's what happens if US house prices stop going up. Here's what's underneath. Here's where it leads to. And I think well ahead of time, actually, it was like I was speculating on, is there some kind of Lehman event out there? Because it's not just about house prices. It's not about subprime. It's not about CDOs. It's not just about that. It's about the whole financial system and how it functions. And it was a very difficult, often very difficult conversations with policymakers. This is the other part of what I was doing. UBS, I'll be forever grateful to UBS. They let me loose on their client base around the world to say, hey, look, this is what I think's coming. There were people who said, oh my gosh, you're right. Let's go and do this and protect this and hedge that or just short subprime. But then I was also let loose on some of the world's most important policymakers throughout that period. And that was quite an amazing experience. I mean, not quite. It was an amazing experience to be able to sit down with some of the most senior policymakers, central bank governors and others in a very diplomatic way and say, look, 
I know you think subprime is contained. However, may I just suggest A, B, and C. And to go into the Federal Reserve for the first time, go up these huge marble stairs, past two security stalls, walk past the FOMC boardroom and walk down the hall to have a conversation with someone I won't mention, or actually more than one person I won't mention, I thought, A, what the hell am I doing here? And B, I'm not going to make this about their poor judgments or their misunderstanding. I'm not going to come in and beg for anything like most people who talk to central bankers, you know, they want something. I'm going to go in and approach these people as fellow human beings and try to position myself as someone who might be able to help in a diplomatic way. And from early 2007 onwards, when it was clear that we were heading for bad times, it wasn't just about advising investors. It was about briefing some of the world's most important policymakers about what I thought was coming. And that was a hell of a challenge, but what a privilege to be able to have that seat and that role at that time. And I guess it built the base for, for Aiken Advisors. Just oh, definitely. sort of coming back to how you think about stuff, James, what's sort of your philosophy about how you, you think about things at, at Aiken Advisors? And sort of two things come to my mind, other than my colleague Sandy McGregor, I don't know anyone else who reads more than, than you do. And you kind of have this saying, which I enjoy, which is, all we need to do is to be less wrong. Yeah, easier said than done, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, if you just maybe talk a little bit through that. And, and maybe some of the things you've seen when looking across your, your client base, some of the traits you've seen of really great sort of traders and, and investors. There's a whole bunch there, but let, let me go back a little bit. You're right about the reading. My children think of me as a book with legs, <laughs> um, which I am. I discovered at an early age that I love books. I love the serenity of books. I love learning from books. I love the knowledge you can gain from books. I love the conversations you can have with some of the greatest figures from the past by reading their books. And it doesn't cost you much. It's a great education. So I was always a good reader. And I remember one time, I'm not quite sure why, but mum and dad, I think for my ninth birthday, gave me two books. One was The Complete Works of Sherlock Holmes, which I love to this day, and I've still got that book. And the other, which set me up perfectly for a career in finance, was Alice in Wonderland. <laughs> and my wife often says, why do you not read more fiction? And I said, I get more than enough fiction in my day job because most days when I look at the Bloomberg or I read the news, you couldn't make it up. Yeah. It's just extraordinary, but it happens. But to tie a couple of things together here about the books and the learning and, and, and being less wrong, goes back to AIG trading. I turn up in March 2002, as I said earlier, 31 years old, thinking, well, I've been in finance for 10 years. I'm a clever chap. I know this. I know that. And I start taking meetings at AIG Trading with two of the most extraordinary men I've met. One was Bernard Connolly, who's one of my great heroes. And I'd encourage our listeners to look up Bernard Connolly, The Rotten Heart of Europe, and Bernard's new book, just read them and admire the learning, the deep learning from this extraordinary, courageous, brilliant man. And the other person I was hanging out with was Sir Alan Walters. And Alan was Margaret Thatcher's economic advisor. So I turn up thinking I know a bit about the world. I start taking meetings with Sir Alan and Bernard. And they are making reference to all these historical figures, this economic events, this, that, and the other. And I'm like, what on earth are they talking about? 
And I realized that far from having some kind of sophisticated understanding of the world, I knew nothing about everything that mattered. And my job over the last 21 years has been to read as much as I possibly can to try to catch up with these two extraordinary men. They both grew up in working class households. They both ended up at the top universities, but they were largely self-educated men because they read. And how lucky was I to work with two gentlemen like that? So the reading underpins everything I do and is essential to the less wrong. Because as you and I both know this, it, we're in this very noisy age where everyone's got an opinion. Okay, we're all entitled to our opinion, but it's all from scrolling, shallow knowledge, and everyone's getting wound up, especially now and manipulated. And I think there's a lot of utility for losing oneself in a book and reading and thinking and reflecting on these complicated issues. And that is the essence of being less wrong. You know, the interesting thing that I took away from the GFC was you actually had two clues. You had HSBC reporting some losses, yep, yep. In the, and then the two Bear Stearns funds went, went bust. But the That's interesting right. thing for, for me is if you go from the GFC, I'm just one of those people who think there's, I know you disagree perhaps a little bit, there's something still that has to be sorted out from there. And the reason why I say it is if you go back, if you look at the European stock market, if you look at the UK stock market, if you look at emerging markets and you convert them into dollars, I mean, for an example, the South African stock market is flat despite having NASPASS's investment in Tencent since 2006 in dollars. And like only America, a few luxury stocks and up until a year or two ago, Chinese tech stocks have actually done anything. Mm. Everything else since the GFC, flat in dollars. Have you got any thoughts on, was there something that came from the GFC that like caused this or, because I'm still, yeah, it just feels like maybe something, not everything was sorted out then. You know, you bailed out the banks, you, you bailed out everything, you put it there. Have we just shifted it sort of, 12, 13 years ahead, or you, you think that's like the wrong way to think about it? The essence of the United States is, if in doubt, do too much of everything, whether it be too much consumption, too much eating, too much Coca-Cola, too much Pepsi, or too much monetary stimulus and asset purchases and this, that, and the other. If in doubt, do too much because you can always dial it back. And that's basically been their mindset for a long, long time. I think that's part of it. But then... To be slightly less cynical, there's always this dynamism in the United States of America, which is extraordinary. We know there's pockets of stress. We know there's unfinished business. We know about the gum con. We know about all the bad things about the United States. We know about the political dysfunction in Washington all day, every day, especially now. And yet somehow, Duncan, it works. I mean, it's extraordinary, really. It works. Consumers are out there consuming. People are going to the slot tables at Vegas. People are down there in Miami having a great time. Right? Especially now, it's slowing a bit, but it's on fire. There's this dynamism that we're well advised to never bet against. Right? It has bad periods, but never rule it out. The Warren Buffett quote, never bet against. He's America. not wrong. He's not wrong. I think that's part of the answer uh, as to why there's been this absolute preference for US equities of all kinds and certain mega cap technology companies in particular. But these mega cap technology companies have got away with a lot. The social media companies have got away with a lot. And you can sense that the tide's turning a bit. We have a Biden administration, not to get too much into this, you have a Biden administration that obviously is partial to Silicon Valley and Silicon Valley is partial to Democratic Party. We know that, that's never gonna change. But it's interesting to see various key members of the Biden administration pushing back very hard 
about the dominance of these large tech companies, and they're starting to push back very hard. And I don't think there's much tolerance left for these mega cap tech companies, and I keep focusing on them because they drive so much of the overall market return, create jobs, earnings, buybacks, you name it. But I don't think there's much tolerance left for these mega cap businesses to dictate terms to Washington. And the interesting thing, of course, was in, in sort of 2000, after the 2010, you could buy Microsoft on six times earnings. Now you're paying 35 times free cash flow. So yes. even if it is a good business, a yes. lot of the sort of scale businesses have, have been priced that way. Yes, that's exactly right. And, and sort of the, the one thing you've spoken about recently, which you've been quite reasonably correct on, if that's the right way to say it, is sort of interest rates being higher yeah. on the short end, but also that there's actually nothing wrong with a 10-year bond in the US at five and a bit percent. If you just give sort of a the short, sort of more simple uh, yeah. explanation of, you think it's actually fine. So lots of people are panicking and it seems like, you know, if the 10-year goes down, tech stocks go up. If yeah. the 10-year goes up, tech stocks go down. We're kind of caught to like in this weird sort of disequilibrium type of. Yeah, you're right. And being reasonably right is what I'm trying to do. Yeah, it's enough. If, if, I'm, if I'm absolutely right, fantastic. But if I'm reasonably right, or less wrong on difficult issues, I'm, that's what I'm trying to solve for all the time. In the case of bonds, look, it's like so many things these days. There's people trying to say this is the end of the world or based on 2008, everything must go wrong, something's going to break. They're, they're trying to get attention, eyeballs distract us. They're trying to create uh, a lot of noise and too often it's just exactly that, it's noise. And this year we've had all these concerns about higher bond yields are going to break this, they're going to break that. And we certainly had a big wobble with Silicon Valley Bank in March, as we all remember, and a couple of others as well. But there's nothing to be feared from higher bond yields per se. It's like everything in finance. It depends. If bond yields are going a lot higher because you've got a massive fiscal crisis or inflation's out of control, there's no disguising the fact that that's bad. But if bond yields are going higher, as they have been in the United States, because in the first instance, the recession that everyone's been waiting for all year is still postponed. We haven't avoided it. It's just been postponed. And secondly, if you look at previous economic cycles over the past 40 or 50 years, which people tend not to do, they look at the recent recency bias about interest rates, which is human nature. But if you look at economic cycles over the past 40, 45 years, and let's just take the early 80s. Nominal GDP in the United States was mid to high single digits in the early 1980s. As some of my older clients who were trading, a couple of them were on the bond desk at Salomon Brothers in the early 80s, which was a pretty exciting time. Their rule of thumb, which is true, is that 10-year treasury yields in the United States should be roughly in line with US nominal GDP. Now, it doesn't mean instantly in line. It means roughly in line. So if we look at the five-year annual average of nominal GDP in the United States. It's obviously picked up, right? And through the third quarter of this year, it was around about 6%, the five-year average, whereas the past 25 years has been more around four-ish. So it's no wonder that the 10-year note, Treasury, I should say, in the United States, the yields over the past 20-odd years tended, or past 15, tended to peak around four. Kind of makes sense. But if it was a result of fiscal stimulus, the Inflation Reduction Act and everything else, Nominal GDP in the United States is going to be a little bit higher than average, somewhere around 5 to 6%. It's perfectly natural and perfectly normal for a 10-year Treasury to be somewhere between 5 and 
So far from being some kind of disaster, what we saw over the past three to four months with a 10-year Treasury being up around five and then yesterday it's more like four and a half, that's perfectly normal. It's more in line with where it should be. And just to add a point, I know Mr. Druckenmiller and others are saying that high bond yields in the United States are some measure of fiscal crisis. Well, if they were, the bond market would not have rallied this week because the fiscal situation in the United States has not changed over the last five days. So there's a lot of alarmism in this, that and the other. Now, to be clear, the US fiscal situation is extremely problematic as we look over the years to come. But for me, the reason bond yields have gone up in the United States in particular is not just because the Fed's been more hawkish and put policy rates up a lot. We know that. It's also because nominal GDP has been higher than people thought. And it's perfectly normal, perfectly natural for nominal bond yields to be higher in that situation. So not to be feared, just to be observed. So would you say then there's, if you look at that history of interest rates, which your friend Jim Grant often quotes, you know, the mm. bond markets tend to go in three decade yeah. bull and bear market. So we might just be in year three of a bond bear market, but you that can just happen. And that's not a bad thing if it goes steadily. I mean, would you say there's very little chance of early 1980 interest rates when you get 10% real on the, on the 10 year and started a 30 year bull market in bonds? Look, I probably shouldn't say this on this on this podcast, Duncan, but if we, you and I can get 10% real yields on any instrument for the next 10 years, we should buy all of that and retire. Yeah. But we won't. <laughs> no, I don't, think, I don't think there's a risk we're going back to the 80s, let alone the 70s. I think people have learned from that. One of the things, ironically, that central bankers ought to have learned from the 1970s is that you can't relax when you think you've got inflation beaten. You can't relax. You have to be vigilant. Hence this narrative from the Fed and others about higher for longer. Whatever that means, we'll find out in 2024, but it makes sense that they're trying to take a tough line. The takeaway there is that rather than the past 20 years where every time in a low inflation world, there was a bit of a wobble in economies and there was a bit of wobble in stocks and central banks would respond rapidly to that. This time, because inflation is stickier, central banks will be reluctant to bail out markets in particular, as they would have done in previous cycles. But I think for me, it's, it's unlikely we go back to an early 80s scenario of those kind of yields. But I think it's reasonable to imagine that the bond bull market on which so many careers were built- And assets priced. Correct. And so many portfolios constructed, that's probably gone. And yet I see so many people trying to bet that we're going to have some kind of mean reversion to this magical environment between 2009 and 2019, where generally you turned up to work every day and you bought something because everything went up. I don't think we're going back to that world. And you recall, a lot of people called the 09 to 19 period the new normal. Well, it wasn't. It was the abnormal. And what we're doing now slowly but surely, is not mean reverting to that lovely 09 to 19 period. We mean reverting to a higher volatility world for a whole range of reasons that we saw in the 80s and 90s. And that's going to be a difficult transition for a lot of people. There's going to be another bunch of people saying it's the end of the world, buy bottled water, tin food, all that nonsense. And they should be ignored because as you and I remember, Yes, there were a lot of challenges in the world in the 80s and 90s, not just in major economies, but developing economies as well. And somehow we muddled through. We found a way to address them. And the takeaway for me, again, slowly and steadily, is that if we owned 
a whole set of instruments between 2009 and 19 to take advantage of that world, and that world is gone, then obviously we need to own different instruments, different businesses and different securities to position ourselves successfully for the world that we're transitioning into. It sounds obvious, it sounds simple, but a lot of people are fighting it. You have said, James, uh, similar to something Russell Napier has said that when they asked him, you know, what are you advising your clients in in Europe? He said, fire all your portfolio managers and replace them with Brazilians. And when I spoke to him, you could have put South Africans in there because, you know, we used to in inflation, five, six, seven percent inflation. We used to currencies going all over the place. We used to interest rates going high. I mean, you were, we were talking about you were kind of a, of a similar opinion that actually people who've been used to managing money in the U.S. and and Europe that actually might have to look at what's happened in emerging markets and kind of tailor your portfolios in the kind of difficult countries where we manage money as opposed to the US. Absolutely right. Completely agree with Russell on that. It's a great point. And you're dead right because there's been a tendency for 20 or 30 years for do-gooders in the privileged financial bubbles of London, New York, and yes, Washington, and to some extent Berlin and Brussels to lecture our friends in developing markets. Oh, you should do more of that. Have you thought about this? Your macro prudential framework should be this. Basically, endless lecturing. And I've had a number of leading central bankers say to me over the years, oh, I wouldn't want Lesetia's job. Oh, and now, actually, I wouldn't mind Lesetia's job. When they look at their intray in developing markets at central banks with inflation still high, far from their 2% inflation targets, yet their economies are slowing, unemployment is rising a bit. That's a really tough economic situation to get the policy settings right because you're going to have to cause pain. You're going to have higher realised volatility on a range of financial instruments. You're going to have a whole range of things which folks operating in the privileged bubble of developed market finance have not had to deal with for a very long time. And in fact, other than, frankly, a brief painful moment in late 2008, all these bubble machines in developed markets have never paid the full price for their misunderstanding of risk. We've never paid the full price because we've been endlessly bailed out. To get to the point, yes, if we're going to understand a higher realised volatility world, whether it be geopolitics, financial markets or whatever, we're going to have to think like our friends in developing markets, right? And this is the flip side. It sounds a bit scary for people in developed markets when you say, do you mean the realised volatility on treasuries will be 5 6 7% compared to the past 20 years? Oh, gosh, that's difficult. Maybe I need to get out of my growth stocks and have more value stocks or oil and gas stocks, assuming I can. Whereas our friends in developing markets would just laugh you mean you're worried about 5, 6, 7% realised volatility on bonds or higher? Give me a break. We've dealt with that all our career. And then related to that, the simple distinction between nominal and real GDP, some basic things like that. So rather than endlessly lecturing our friends in developing markets or emerging markets, as some people still call them, no, no, we need to learn from you. And coming back to the, it's, it's been one of the sort of themes we've been talking to our clients about sort of, you know, we've spoken about sort of high inflation, sort of an energy short world, we might have time to get to that. And then the sort of splitting in, in the world. In South Africa, our, obviously our minds are quite focused on it. When we've been saying like the next 15, 20 years, let's say starting in 2019, are going to be different from those. Do you think managers need to have a geopolitical risk overlay on their portfolios for want of a better way 
of saying it. So in a, instead of just saying, here's a spreadsheet, here are the 50 cheapest stocks in the world. A lot of them happen to be in emerging markets and let's say some of them are in China and you go, those are the ones I put in the portfolio and I'm actually, I'm a fundamental investor. I don't deal with politics. That's up to someone else. Do, do you think the time has come where there has to be some kind of overlay on the portfolio? Let me answer that with a story. And you know this has been on my mind for five years. In November 2008, way up in a, in a corporate HQ in Midtown Manhattan, I won't name the institution, I'll just say they're a very big bank. I co-hosted a lunch with some leading intelligence people, including a fellow Australian named John Garneau. And there were about 12 of us in the room. There were some, let's call them deep state types. And then the other half were fund managers, including some leading US hedge fund types. And it was a conversation about Xi Jinping, strategic competition, Washington, Beijing, the sorts of things that everyone should be focused on now, but that was five years ago. And there was one young chap in the room who didn't say much. He was from a very well-known hedge fund. And eventually, towards the end of the lunch, we said, well, you've, you've been a bit quiet, mate. Um, what do you think? He said, oh, I don't need any of this geopolitical, and I'll paraphrase, nonsense. I don't need any of this macro nonsense. I don't need any of that. I'm a stock picker, but it's been an interesting lunch, but I, it's not material to what I do. Okay, fair enough. Good of you to come along, but look, do you mind telling us what your, your favorite position is or your biggest position? He said, yeah, no worries. I'm long a yard of Alibaba. And we're like, you have no interest in geopolitics. You have no interest in macro. You have no interest in how Xi Jinping thinks. You have no interest in strategic competition. Yep. But your largest position is long Alibaba. Oh, yeah. Okay. All right. Fair enough. Um, good luck with that. We all look pretty stupid for the next six months. And then after that, we look pretty good. And I think that's a metaphor for a lot of, lot of people have been wrestling with. And you do need that geopolitical overlay. It's very tricky, though. It's hard to populate that cell on the spreadsheet for geopolitics for any of us. We can guess a range of different outcomes, but how do you actually build that into your valuation model for any instrument? Well, you don't really. It's hard to do. Trading geopolitics is really difficult. You can have all these people on speed dial from, from Dr. Kissinger to, to Neil Ferguson to whoever. It doesn't really matter. We're all just trying to portray that we're in the game or we're on top of the game. But I'll tell you one thing that comes to mind, Duncan. In a world that's much more difficult, and obviously, I'm sure, to everyone listening, that is splitting into blocks, home bias is going to be on the rise. There's going to be a preference, I would think, for greater and greater home bias in a dangerous world. If you're not sure what's happening here, there, and everywhere, either you fully trust the US and Canada and the UK and Japan, Australia, etc., and certain key emerging markets, developing markets, but then there's others that you really can't touch for all sorts of reasons. But if in doubt, the biggest pools of saying will say, geez, that feel, uh, I know I might get slightly better returns in X, Y, and Z, but you know what? If in doubt, I think I'll keep the money here, particularly if I can get an attractive rate of return in, in fixed income instruments and others. So yes, it's the obvious answer. It gets much more difficult. And as you know, I've had some very uh, serious concerns, which are ongoing and increasing about what the rise or the dominance of Xi Jinping means for the world. That's interesting because if you go back three years and you were an emerging market 
manager and you were a value manager, yeah. it made perfect sense to have a large overweight in Russia. Strong balance sheet, yeah. reserves, yeah. long energy, in good fiscal position, and you're buying stocks on single-digit multiples. And then two weeks later, you wake up and every one of your positions is down 90% and you still haven't been able to trade out of those positions. And that's kind of how we've been thinking in the portfolio. As you know, South Africa is very overweight mm. to China. We have, mm-hmm. obviously, we have NASPAS and Process, we right. have Richemont, which is roughly 46. And if you believe in luxury, you believe in the Chinese that's long-term right. story of, of Chinese correct. demand. You know, we have just so many, we have all the mining companies where mm. 50 to two-thirds of seaborne uh, demand is China. And so we really have to be focused. And then, unfortunately for South Africa, it's also the indirect effect because in high commodity prices, which are driven by China, gives us you know, more sort of export revenue, which allows interest rates to stay lower, which is a bigger tax tax, which allow people to spend at retailers. So we really have to be uh, focused a lot on China. And it was really because you know, many funds in South Africa were running 12 to 20% of fund in NASPAS mm. because it was big in, in the benchmark. And even if we think it's cheap, we've thought a lot about what you've said. And we've actually tried to find people who are very bullish on China as well, you know, as you always say, keep an open mind. Absolutely right. I've spoken to people who are more bearish like you. Yeah. We've spoken to some of the people in China. We speak to NASPAS management. You know, we try to like get a, a, a sort of balanced point of view, but this political thing is just a lot sort of, sort of tougher. Um, and it's going to be hard for companies. And, and I think where people have missed, uh, where I think the risk hasn't come through yet, and I don't know what your thoughts on here is, if you're Apple, you're doing like a $100 billion turnover in China in a quarter. If you're Starbucks, it's 30% of your thing. If you Disney, you know, where, so for all these big US companies, it's actually interesting that Nike, you know, it was easy, easy to pull out of Russia because it was 2% of your sales. Mm. What is Mr. Rupert going to do? Is he going to close all the Cartier stores in China? The strategy from the Communist Party of China across a number of regimes is very simple. Make ourselves so enmeshed in global commerce, supply chains, and everything else, manufacturing, that Western democracies cannot afford to pull out of us. That's the gamble. And it's worked. And on top of that, allocate so much money to global fund managers that they better be good to us. People have said for years, oh, China has this great threat hanging over US government bonds. They might sell treasuries or agency mortgage-backed securities. We heard about that for years. It doesn't matter. It just doesn't matter, right? What I worry about far more is something that people don't talk about, which is the six to six and a half trillion dollars that Chinese state savers have with Western fund managers from private equity to all the biggest hedge funds. I say to people, what happens if Xi Jinping says, we redeem now? And they say, don't be stupid. It's not the first time anyone said to me, don't be stupid. I said, I know. I'm just telling you that Xi Jinping does not think like us. What makes you think he cares about your bottom-up analysis of Alibaba, Tencent? We go down the list. He doesn't care. He is so consistent. He makes his mind up about it, a course of action, and he follows it. He doesn't care about you. He doesn't care about these businesses unless it suits him. And if you think he's not prepared to redeem all that capital, then you need to think again. Because it's not about the money. It's not about the impact or the potential impact on global capital markets. In fact, if the impact is bad enough, it might suit them. And what people need to figure out now is that when you think geopolitics, finance, financial markets, global payments, all of that is now at the cutting edge of a world that's fracturing. 
That is where a lot of the battle is occurring all day, every day. And if we think, and I know you don't, but if anyone listening thinks that global state actors are not meddling in financial markets all day, every day, they need to think again. It's a very dangerous world. But to get back to the point, happily, all the active managers I work with and sovereign wealth funds have reduced their exposure to Chinese public equities to zero, not because of just what I'm suggesting to them, but because they've been tapped on the shoulder by their domestic intelligence agencies and politicians saying, look, are you sure you're not funding the development of missiles and all this other stuff that might be used against us at some point in the future or against Taiwan? Nudge, wink, suggest you don't do that. So there's been a constant effort from the world's largest asset allocators to reduce their public market exposure to renminbi assets to zero. More difficult is reducing your private exposures to renminbi assets to zero, although people are trying to do that. There haven't been a lot of private equity funds that I know that have actually bought money out of China. Their returns are there, but they've just reinvested back in China. Now, back to your point about Apple or Dell or Nike. If I can't repatriate the profits I'm generating in any country or China, what's the right carrying value of that particular subsidiary? Because at the risk of being a bit hardcore, if I can't repatriate the profits I'm making in any country and I can't repatriate the capital I've committed, shouldn't the carrying value be zero? And that's a pretty difficult conversation, but I think that's what it should be. Yeah, we've got quite a bit of experience with that in our Africa fund. Right. <laughs> if you look at Nigeria, Zimbabwe, yeah. Kenya yeah. now, because I think people who are used to investing in developed markets, there's always liquidity. But yeah. if you invest in smaller countries, they can go bankrupt. You yeah. can run out of dollars. It, it goes it, back to yeah. Russell's point about thinking about Europe and, frankly, many other countries through the lens of what you have all experienced time and time again in developing markets. We all need to stop lecturing you guys. We need to start learning from you guys and adjusting accordingly. And we need to respect the fact that for all the horrendous difficulties that you've faced here and elsewhere in developing markets, somehow you've found a way to get through them. That's the lesson. But you need to prepare. You need to be disciplined. You need to be bold. But most of all, you need to read and think and study. Maybe just to come back to to one thing, because I I don't want to forget when we've got you here, um, we're obviously known as an equity house, but just the balance fund and the stable fund are 230 billion rand. And those are asset allocation funds, even though we do bottom up sort of stock picking. Just Mm. the the one thing that that I've read where I don't think has been marked to market properly, and we're starting to see it a little bit in South Africa, but if you go overseas, it's amazing how many of the funds you read about have somewhere between 20 and 40% of the fund in unlisted sort of private equity, private credit, and they don't mark them to market. So their, their performance ratios, whether it's return divided by volatility, return, whatever you want to call it, look mm. better because half the portfolio just doesn't get marked to, to market. I mean, is that a, a concern? And just to let everyone know, kind of what we've been concentrating on in our fixed income over the last few years at Allen Gray's, liquid, vanilla, low credit risk. Good. Because we're not trying to make a fortune out of credit. Mm. That is mm. something where we park money that we can use in other asset classes if we want. And yes, if you get a spike like we've had in our bond yields during Nenegate or, or during the pandemic, then you can take advantage of that. But we're not trying to make a fortune. So we're actually busy doing a report on Blackstone now because they've got the big read, right? And just to understand what's going on, interest rates, as you said, have gone from 
50 basis points to 500. And there are all these assets out there that haven't been marked to market. Mm. And they're sitting in these big, big funds. I mean, what do they do now? Because you can't redeem. If you have another funding round, there's going to be a much lower valuation. I think there was that big uh, IT company in Australia, if I remember. All the superannuation funds held it. One round came, and then the regulator wrote to all the funds and said, well, what valuation are you carrying it at? I mean, do you think that's a, one of the big surprises that people haven't been thinking of? There's this loss that's lurking across the system somewhere, and it hasn't been, hasn't been marked to market. I think you're talking about Canva in Australia, off the top yeah, of my head, yeah. which is a great business, but boy, oh boy, $40 billion? I'm not so sure about that. But Of course, there's a problem pending here, but let's, let's break this down into its components because I think this is really critical to understand the, the backstory, the perspective, and how to think about 2024 and beyond. The whole intention of post-2008 financial crisis regulation, and there was a lot of it. Fix the banks. Solve for no more Lehman right? AKA fix the banks. So what do we do? We force banks to build more capital, gigantic liquidity buffers, reduce counterparty risk, a whole range of things actually solving for minimizing the probability of another Lehman. And frankly, I think they've achieved that. And there's more coming in the next six weeks from the Fed about bank balance sheets and stuff like that. So the regulation is never going to soften. It's going to be incrementally tightening. Now, risk is never destroyed. It just moves. And the risk as intended, the risk that would have once been held on a bank balance sheet, whether it be structured credit, subprime or whatever, is now held by non-bank financial institutions of all kinds. And the aspiration is that these holders, the bearers of risk, whether it be structured credit, private, public securities, are able to manage the risk and adjust their positions as they see fit. Well, that's the theory. So the point here is that if you imagine a future financial crisis, there'll be a bank or two, as we saw with Silicon Valley, which gets into trouble. We know that. But my strong suspicion would be whenever the next financial crisis comes, it would be somewhere within non-bank financial institutions. And the problem there is that the data we have on aggregate, let alone institutional exposures, is very limited. That was part of the problem with UK pension funds uh, between July and September 2022. Now, here's the, so what? Why was there such a preference for these illiquid positions? Well, Duncan, at one level, at the time, it was rational. If you're absolutely confident, as central bankers are telling you over and over again, that interest rates will never go up, they're going to be a very low level, or in the worst case, they might only go up to levels we saw between 2009 and 2019, or at least 2009, 2018, after which the Fed was cutting again. Um, you're like, you know what? I'm a long duration investor. Let's go with an Australian super fund. They're big, big entities with big balance sheets. And if I'm an Australian super fund with a median member age 36, which means they're not going to be drawing down any money until they're 65, theoretically, it's actually rational in that world for me to commit as much as my capital as possible to a liquid long duration assets. That's what I should be doing. Hopefully, I choose the right assets or I partner with the right private equity fund or the right venture capitalists, and off I go because this is the future. Let's get on board. Now, that's great until you find out one day, as most of these people do, and it's not just in Australia, but it's Californian pension funds and others, that, oh, our policy portfolio 
suggests that we should be max 40% of liquids, which, by the way, is already really high. Oh, dear. Public markets have come down, which means mathematically... It's gone up, yep. Right. Our liquid exposure mathematically is above our policy portfolio, at which point you have two choices. We have many choices, but basically two. Oh, dear. We should hedge our liquid portfolio or try to redeem or something like that to rebalance it, or we should invest more of our inflows into public markets to bring the ratio down. Or bizarrely, as some of these big global asset allocators are saying, we should actually temporarily increase our exposure to liquid assets to 50% because they're unsellable. So this is a temporary thing. And in the past three days, we've seen a story from Calsters in California. And I'll say this on the, on the podcast because it's in the public domain. They are now looking to deploy more leverage to reduce their exposure to illiquid assets. Now, how you actually deploy more leverage to reduce your illiquidity, I do not know. So the point here is that the Blackstones, the KKRs, the Carlyles, the Apollos, they all know that this is going to get rough. As the US economy slows, defaults pick up, unemployment goes up. You know, that's, that's all to be resolved in 2024. They know there's going to be a large number of bad assets, underperforming assets, defaults. They know that. They're already preparing for that. And they're starting to move assets around between each other's refinance, all this kind of stuff. They know what's coming. They know they're going to get punished for it. They know it's going to look bad at a headline level. They know all of that. I'm actually not worried about those guys per se. Because when a lot of people think about problems to come in non-banks, they think first and foremost about private equity, illiquidity, private debt, private credit, all these things. I think the big problem is actually going to be the people that invested in these strategies. So not the manager, the people that committed too much of their capital to illiquid strategies. And as you and I have been discussing, and I'm sure some of our listeners have seen, there's this brand new industry called NAV lending. And what it's about, just in simple terms, is that let's imagine Duncan and I have invested a billion dollars in a private equity fund that kicked off in 2018. Happily, the asset value, the net asset value has gone up from 100 when we invested to 140. Happy days. For whatever reason, we want our billion dollars back. But the prospectus says we can't take our money out, we can't redeem until 2028. But we're desperate for our money back for a whole range of reasons, not least because risk-free rates have gone up. Now, the private equity manager says, sorry, you, you can't, but I can arrange this thing for you called NAV lending. You go to a bank or some intermediary like an Aries Capital, they will lend you your billion dollars against the net asset value in the fund. Now, at one level, it's great for the lender because if the fund valuation has gone up from 100 to 140, there's a fair bit of fat in there even as prices are marked down, which they have to be. Everyone knows prices have to be marked down for these private assets. That's coming next year. Maximum 30% loan to valuation. So the intermediary says, let's say Calsters, you can have your billion dollars back. We will lend you 30% loan to value, whatever it is. So let's say it's 3 billion, et cetera. And we'll charge you 11%. That's happening. So they're so desperate to get their money out that they will pay 11% annualized to get that billion dollars out. Well, hang on a second. If they're doing that for three or five years, doesn't that erase all the rolled up profit that they had in that fund? And this is happening before the US in particular actually enters anything that resembles a recession. 
What on earth happens to those people when they need liquidity, when the recession actually hits? And you, you mentioned it earlier, the attraction of these illiquid exposures, which is not just an assumption that interest rates are going to be zero forever, or at least not very much different to what we've seen for the past 15 years or so. It was the accounting attraction of having what is theoretically a non-mark-to-market asset, i.e. zero vol asset assumed in my portfolio. And if I have 40% plus of my portfolio in illiquid assets, which are assumed to be zero vol, then of course, that chunk of zero volatility assets means my overall portfolio volatility is lower. And in a couple of cases, if I manage to convince myself that my overall portfolio volatility is lower because of this huge zero vol illiquid private chunk, I will take more risk on the other side. On the other side. And the things we are barely beginning to discover, the dumb things that people have done, not just over the last three years, but the last five, to keep up with the play. That's all ahead of us. And, and frankly, nothing I've said is controversial. Nothing I've said should be a surprise, least not to professionals in financial markets. And frankly, we'd be more amazed were all that not to happen than were it to happen. And switching to our long-term asset allocation and disciplined thinking hats about how to allocate capital for the long-term, it's a little bit Machiavellian. But it's not to say that all these private assets are bad. They're not. There are many good private assets out there held by weak hands. And one of the great lessons, I think, of financial crises is if you can be the man or woman left standing because you understood the risks. And you have the cash. And you have the cash and you have the mandate. There's no better feeling. And it doesn't happen too often, although it did three years ago. There's no, and, and to some extent, in the UK in September 2022, when the, the gilt market blew up, there were bargains galore to be had because there were four sellers. But Duncan, there's no more powerful feeling. I think, well, you tell me, but there's no more powerful feeling or few more powerful feelings to be precise in finance, not getting your analysis right and putting capital to work and it's a 10x over the next several years. That's great. But there's no more powerful feeling than being able to name your price. And it's hard because it's lonely. But what I'm waiting for in 2024 is the inevitability of a reckoning in private markets and all these illiquid exposures. But also the hardest thing to do when that inevitability occurs, is to keep it in perspective, to be calm, to be rational. And the challenge is actually to say, you know what? I know this is all blowing up or whatever, or this is challenging. I know people are trying to liquidate these assets as a no bid. Actually, I know that asset. I can point to that building. I've been in that building. I've visited this. I know that. I know that asset. I know that business. Actually, you know, I'm comfortable putting in a bid. And from time to time, you'll find that people are so desperate for liquidity that they will take that bid. And it's a great, great feeling because investing 101, if you name your price, i.e. a low one, and you are a liquidity provider to an asset you understand, not only are you obviously increasing your margin of safety, you are also, by buying at a low attractive price, increasing your expected returns. And that, my friend, 
is Investing 101. Maybe just a, a last question before we, we wrap up. Do you think there'll ever be a time where we go back to sort of the 60s or something where no investors even knew who the central bank governors were? Uh, if you read the Howard Marks books, when he started, he said, you know, being a fund manager wasn't a glamorous job. You went in, you worked at an insurer, you said, you and like, no one really cared about, or, or is it just past that point? Just, just like sort of a brief sort of. I think if you ask central bankers, they would love to move from the front page to the back page, <laughs> yeah. but they've thought that for a decade. I think realistically that's going to be impossible because there's unfinished business with inflation, there's unfinished business with growth, there's unfinished business with a whole range of things. That means that I'm afraid they're going to be close to the front page for a long time to come. And not ideal, but there we are. But then you remind me of something else. We've all been trained in our careers. I think most of us have been in finance for 25, 30 years. We've all been trained that monetary policy is the only game in town. Every leading sell-side and buy-side analyst of central banks has come from a central bank. And they probably all share the same dogma about what central banking is, what they do, how they communicate. And there's a tendency, I won't say it's a fact, but it's a tendency to colossal groupthink. There are endless monetary policy conferences around the world, not least in Chicago every year, and everyone comes together to nod along and agree. And they all talk about the intricacies and the minutiae of central bank and monetary policy, all of which is important. Where are all the fiscal policy conferences? Where are all the tax policy conferences? Where are the defense spending conferences? Why are we not attending those as market participants? Because there's the future. We need to understand tax multipliers. We need to understand budgets. We need to go back to the basics of how do you issue government bonds? Who buys? Who sells? How does it work? That's the bedrock of the world we're transiting to. That's the bedrock. And yet, for obvious reasons, everyone must be spoon-fed by central bankers. But Duncan, if you and I and our listeners are going to be less wrong, we have to use our imaginations. We have to think differently. We have to read. We have to think and we have to try and understand, most of all, how fiscal policy works and how government balance sheets work. So I think when we just look back at the conversation uh, today, you know, we don't expect a, a rerun of 2007, 2008, but it's going to be different from what it was before. Yes. Certainly how our portfolios are positioned. Yes. So we've obviously had a, a good streak of performance at the moment, but it does feel like a, a lot has gone, gone right over the last sort of two, three years. So James, thanks very much. Um, we appreciate it. We also appreciate sort of all the value you've added to the investment team um, at Alan Gray. And yeah, I look forward to chatting to you again. And, and thanks for, for coming to see us. Thanks very much, everyone, for listening. You know, if you'd like to get in touch, please visit alangray.co.za. You can subscribe to the podcast on any one of your favorite podcast platforms. Let's be notified of new episodes. Lastly, just to get the legal stuff out the way, Alan Gray is an authorized financial services provider. To view the terms and conditions or find out more about our offering, please visit alangray.co.za. Until next time, I'm Duncan Artis. This podcast was produced by Volume. Thank you for listening.